it in Acts chapter 7. That's what it will be, so you can turn there if you want. Um, but basically, just thinking about it, there's a bunch of different interesting dynamics. We're going to talk about Stephen today. We, we talked about him last week. But one thought, just to kind of get us started, uh, is there a difference, right? Is there a difference? I was thinking about this thought beforehand. Is there a difference between persistence and stubbornness? Right? Is there a difference between persistence, sticking through it, or being hard-headed? Is there really a difference between the two? And as I was thinking about, thinking about it, um, you know, you tend to think of situations like where it would equate. Like where do you actually see those two things happening? So, persistence. So maybe, um, you know, I, I think about sports all the time and being around sports. I think about somebody who, they always want to try and give their best at whatever they're doing, whatever sport that it is. Like they won't settle um, for shooting 60% from the free throw line. Or they won't settle for like a 200 batting average. You know, they'll go in, they'll do the extra work, they'll, they'll come in early, they'll stay late, and they'll be persistent about that. Um, we just had Martin Luther King Day, and that guy was certainly persistent, right? All kinds of adversity. People mocking him, really not encouraging him really as a whole. And I can't imagine what it was like really to walk in his shoes during that time period of just countless threats and people coming after him, but he persevered, right? Persistence, persevered. Um, but then I think of like stubbornness, and I think maybe you've seen it or maybe you've had the experience of seeing someone or maybe you walking a dog that just like is a bad walker, and that dog like it gets all down like all the way and you're trying to yank it and it's just like hunkering down too especially when it smells something and like it starts zigging and zagging and it's going behind you it's just like it has its own will and it just wants to go its own way and you're trying to like rein it in and walk with it and it's just it's a losing battle a lot of times you know and you're yelling at it and then it's like you know breathing out crazy because it's choking itself but it doesn't even matter because it wants its thing you know it's just it's stubborn stubborn um so I don't know, you know, are they different or are they related? And really the only thing I could come to was that within persistence and within perseverance, you've got to have a little bit of stubbornness and hard-headedness to kind of push through sometimes. You have to have kind of that backbone and that stiff neck and push through the difficult times because that's what's going to make you be successful on the end. But then on the other side, I think the people that are really stubborn and hard-headed. They have a real hard time of discerning that line of, um, do I really have to push through on this one, or do I not? Is this one kind of all the signs around me telling me that I should just sort of take it easy and maybe not push so hard on this? So a guy like you know Martin Luther King, who we were just talking about, everything in the world fighting against him, he just must have... You know, deep down inside convictions, he knew I have to keep pushing out this thing. This is right. I got to do it. I don't care what people are saying. I don't care what friends I'm going to lose along the way or family members. He had to be stubborn in a sense and hard headedness to kind of push through. And then, uh, you know, I can think of my life of just examples of just being stubborn and hard headedness basically because. Usually, nine times out of ten, it was usually pride-related. I just wanted to be right in some way, or I thought that like some situation had to be right. So, as we read through this, 
this is going to play in a lot more. We'll kind of see how it develops, you know, with Stephen and with this situation. Because last time we talked about Acts chapter 6. And in Acts chapter 6, they had the problem in the early church with the widows. And basically there's favoritism going on. Really the, so, the more pure Hebrew Jewish widows were getting treated better than the Greek speaking uh, widows. And they brought to the apostles and said, hey, this is a problem. There's favoritism going on. You know, we're not getting a fair shake in this thing. And they said, okay. So they went back. They prayed. God told them, hey, let's uh, appoint seven people that are full of spirit and full of wisdom. And those will be the guys that will pass it out and take care of this ministry. Because us, we have to stick to praying and we have to stick to teaching the word. Like that was their cornerstone. That was what they had to do as their priority. So they have these uh, seven guys that they eventually pick out that they say, yep, they're filled with spirit, they're filled with wisdom. And Stephen is kind of the guy that sort of really steps on the scene in the second half of that chapter. And what happens is he gets confronted by some opposition. They call him the synagogue of the freedmen. So he gets confronted. He's on the scene and he's doing some pretty remarkable things. Not only is he doing this benevolence work of passing food out and meeting needs of of widows, he's also doing miraculous signs and wonders and even healing people. And so he's certainly full of the Spirit and full of power. So this opposition confronts him. And we don't really know what the details were as far as what they were confronting him on, but nonetheless they did. And they were pretty fired up and not real happy. And within that, they tried to trap him and really catch him but they couldn't do it because because he had like supreme wisdom and supreme power and so they just got frustrated they just got mad they got frustrated it wasn't working out they couldn't get after this guy and so what did they do they just started making up lies about him that's what they did they started did you hear over here you know he's saying you shouldn't follow Moses Moses is our guy like we shouldn't follow his rules they're saying they're telling us that Jesus is going to come and tear this temple down our holy temple Jesus is going to come and take it down. All the rules and customs, they're telling us not to follow them anymore. So they're spreading all these lies. Eventually, the lies get to the ruling council, like the head religious leaders. So it gets to them. And so he's faced before them. And so they bring Stephen in. Once they hear that, they're sitting down. And now they say, you know, are these charges true? What they're saying is this... What's really going on? And so that brings us to right now. They're in the room. Stephen is there. They're there. Let's make believe we're there in the room. We're watching. We're seeing this develop. What would you do if you were sitting there, Stephen? Um, so that's where we pick up. So we pick up in chapter 7, verse 1. So it says, Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? All right? Are the charges true? So very quickly... Are these charges? So here's the things that basically they said about him. So just to kind of keep in the back of your mind as we go through it, because this is some stuff from last time in chapter 6. So here's some of the charges. Number one, speaking against their holy place or their holy temple, like where they worship, that was just um, the most important thing really to them. Speaking against the law, sort of their way of practicing uh, religion, and that was passed down through Moses. The destruction again of the holy place, right? So not only did he speak against it, but he also supposedly said, right? That's why it says false charges up there. These are really false charges. This is the stuff they're whispering about. And so the destruction of it by Jesus himself. And then the last one, to change the customs. 
that Moses handed down to them. Basically that he's just going to, you know, Moses being the father of the faith really, that he's, that he's trying to change stuff. So here's the charges and they say, are they true? So now Stephen finally gets a chance to talk and boy does he take advantage of it. Now I'm going to prepare you now. Yes, we're going to go through it and we're going to read it and cover it and even talk a little bit after. It's a lot of verses. Okay? So you got to hunker down and get ready. It's about 59, 60 verses. So you're going to get your Bible reading in church today. But Because I, I, I think we do a disservice if we kind of like cut it off in the middle or somewhere. Like we're in the room. We're in the story now. Like, let's get the whole thing in context and see what really develops and really happens. So this is uh, the longest speech in Acts, but there's some good stuff in here, and I think you'll enjoy it. So he goes, verse 2, To this he replied. So here he goes. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Right? Just pleading with these guys with the exclamation point. It says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. So here he goes. He's going all the way back. And he's going to kind of give like this history. It seems like a history lesson, but there is a point to it. So you just got just to gotta bear with him and go through this. It says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And God told him, Leave your country and your people... God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he takes them all the way back. So in verse 4 he says, So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. So after Abraham dies, he sends him to this land where they're now at. It says in verse 5, he says, He gave them no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land. Even though at that time, Abraham had no child, right? So going back, God called Abraham. He said, basically, get up and go. He didn't have, like, apartment there. He didn't have a house there. Um, he didn't even have any family there. Didn't know how he was going to plug in. Didn't even have any kids. But God said, go, and I'm going to fill with your descendants. Tell me, that's not a radical step of faith. So anyways, that's what happened. So in verse 6, it says, God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I'll punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, and afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. So that's what happens. The Egypts, right, are there, and God delivers them, right, the exodus out of there. So in verse 8, it says, Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs, right? So Jacob had all the kids within Judah and Reuben and Gad and, and all of those. So he's really showing them that he's aware of what's going on and he's aware of you know, their heritage. So verse 9, it says, Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. So he goes from Abraham down to Jacob. Now he's with Joseph and just given really the whole background here. It says in verse 11, Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering. And our fathers could not find food. So remember they were in Egypt, they didn't have any food, and 
you know, Joseph at this time was there in Egypt and was in command. And in verse 12 it says, When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, actually on their second time, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. So Jacob went to Egypt, where he and the fathers died. It says their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had brought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem at a certain sum of money. So let's press pause real quick for a minute. So just up here, as we kind of go through it, just this is kind of just a little bit of outline just to help a little bit. And if you're taking notes, it helps a little bit. Because sometimes when you start reading the words, just jumble together and it can get confusing. So just verses 2 through 8 basically is kind of the call of Abraham. So he goes verses 9 through 29, the story uh, of Joseph. 20 through 44, a little bit of Moses right within there. We're going to see some idolatry and a promise of a prophet. And 45 through 50, he talks about the temple. And all of it is significant, and we'll talk about in a minute. So let's pick up again at verse 20 so we can pick up about Moses. So it says, At that time Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughters took him and brought him up as her own son. So it says Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Right? So Moses was born. So he was about three months old. Right? They brought him up as his own. They educated uh, in the Egyptian ways. And he became a very powerful man uh, in Egypt. So in verse 23 it says, When Moses was 40, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. But they did not, right? He kind of misread God at that point in time. And they didn't recognize him. They didn't appreciate it. Verse 26 says, The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. And he tried to reconcile it, saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. And then he says, Another forty years goes by. And then you have an angel appearing to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. He went over to look more closely. He heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Probably what most of us would do if there's a bush that's not burning up and then it starts talking to you. So in verse 33 says, Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the impression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea for 40 years in the desert. 
This is what Moses told the Israelites. God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. And he received living words to pass on to us. It says, but our fathers refused to obey him. So now Stephen is kind of getting into it a little bit now. It says they refused to obey him. And if I was you know, reading that in my Bible, I got to underline in my Bible because that's significant. It says the fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him. And I got that one underlined too, right there. And it says, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him, right? He went on the hill and God was speaking to him and they said, who knows what happened to this guy? So that was the time they made an idol, right? Here's the idolatry we talked about. They made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. So this agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the desert, O house of Israel, you have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of the god Raphan, and the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I'm going to send you into exile to Babylon. So they did this stuff, and God wasn't happy, and he said what he was going to do about it. So in verse 44, it says, Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses. So now we start talking about like this temple and tabernacle thing. According to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses. Right? This is another part you might want to underline as we go through it. The Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? So now he gets into it. Right? He kind of gives them this whole history thing, which you just read about. And so now... Here he comes, the culmination. He says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but you haven't obeyed it. And they, so they go on verse 54. It says, When they heard this, you can imagine their reaction if you're sitting in the room where he gives them all the history and then he kind of lets them have it. How are they going to react? It says, They were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And so that's a little bit of a familiar scene maybe, right? Remember when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist and heaven opened and said the Spirit descended like a dove and there was lightning. At the same time here, heaven opens for Stephen. And he says he sees standing at the right hand of God is Jesus. 
It says, At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. It says, Meanwhile the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. So we just went through a lot of stuff. It's a lot of reading. Alrighty. So, what is going on and what's happening? A couple of things that I want to point out that is important. Okay? He just went through a whole lot of stuff. And it really just seems like he just recited Israel's history. And like, why did he do that? Did he really answer the charges? And is it significant really at all? There's a few things that really stick out and you kind of have to dig for. So the call of Abraham. So right away, one of the charges was right that he's really perverting the law, perverting the tradition, saying God wants to change it. And really in a sense saying... This guy isn't really for the same faith that we're in and for the same traditions and for the same beliefs. They're really trying to pervert that. And what he's doing, he's showing, really giving a genuine testimony of, I really am and I understand how it came to be. And so he starts with Abraham. And then what he does, he goes to Joseph and Moses. And this is significant. Because when he goes from Joseph and Moses, if you notice, Joseph and Moses were both rejected their first time, their first times when they came. Right? Joseph was rejected by his brothers, and it said the second time when he came back, they were finally embraced, and they recognized him for who he was. With Moses, they rejected him right away, right after that whole incident with the Egyptian, right? And he killed that guy and they said, oh, who made you ruler and judge over us? But the second time when he came back, after his 40 years in the desert and the burning bush thing, they finally welcomed him. Right? They got into a little bit of a pattern of really rejecting God's sent people and what he had. And he was trying to show that through Joseph and through Moses. Be like, listen, this goes all the way back. This is like not a new thing. You've rejected Joseph. You've rejected Moses. And now you just sent Jesus to the cross and rejected him. Like, this is a pattern. You guys got to see this. Like, this, is, this has been developing for a long time. And within that, they had idolatry and um, a promise. And Moses himself, the father of the faith, gave a promise of this prophet that was to come. And they didn't even realize that part. And that was written down for them. So he's trying to show them and paint the picture. Yes, the charges are, you know, about this holy place, which we'll talk about in a minute, the temple. But it's also a lot about perverting Moses and perverting the law and how he doesn't want to uphold those. But that's not really the case. What he does, he gives them all of Israel's history, puts it into perspective and says, listen, there's been a problem at the very beginning you guys really haven't dealt with. And for whatever reason, been fighting against God the whole time. But he's been trying to continue to come back. And he happens to pick Joseph and Moses. And he could have picked Jeremiah, Isaiah, and all the prophets. And all the warnings and things that they have done where they always just fought against it and at times killed people that were trying to give the message that God gave for them. So this was a pattern for them. He's really setting the scene here. So it's not just like a whole discourse in Israel's history um, just because, you know, he wants to display his knowledge. He's really trying to attack the root problem. The root problem being, this has been a pattern for a long time. And right now it's in front of you, and you don't have much longer. 
So you might want to respond in the right way. Repentance right now would be a good thing. And then as far as the temple goes, a quick word, a couple of side notes on the temple. We have a picture about why did they make such a big deal about this temple thing? Like, what is the big deal about that? Well, as far as the temple goes, they considered it sacred. Uh, it was their special worship place. It had everything they needed. And it was like, their belief, that's where God was. That's like, that's where God was. That's where you met Him. They, they sanctified that place. They just associated God with the temple. Like, you're close with God. Like, you're very active. You have the temple. And so basically on the left here, Solomon's temple. Remember way back when Solomon built the temple? That's basically his. Okay? But that got ransacked and destroyed through Babylon and Assyria and all this stuff that happened. Basically, they're meeting right now in Herod's temple. Right? Herod built them a temple, believe it or not. It took them about 10 years. Things think unbelievable. I mean, it says, what is it, Solomon's is about half, less than half the size of Herod's. It took them about 10 years. And he did it really to gain favor with the Jews. So it had like, it had everything. It had, you know, everything they wanted. And everything they needed, more than they needed. And so it was really their pride and joy. And it was really, really important to them. And to say that, Jesus is going to come and destroy that thing. That is like, you don't say that. That, that blasts me. How can you say that? That's like, that's where God is. And you're saying that God is going to like come destroy something He gave us. Why would He do that? Why would He do that? And so, that area and that place has sort of always kind of been like that. It's always kind of been like a sacred site. But we just read before that, that the whole point of Jesus coming was that God, he doesn't, God isn't in a building or in a place. You know, he just doesn't reside here in the Elks Lodge or some of the beautiful churches and architecture that's in New England. Like You won't find that stuff on the West Coast. I go see my, you know, some relatives in California and I go looking around. You won't see like these big, just beautiful, like in Waterbury. You don't see these big, beautiful churches over there. Like They don't have these big, beautiful buildings. I don't know what's going on inside of them, but they don't like have that stuff there. Because very often, you know, even if you go to Europe, you'll see these things and you sort of like, you know, beautiful buildings, nice places, nice windows, and it just sort of like demands respect and you think godliness is really there because it's so beautiful, but it's not exactly the case because we just read before that, you know, God said, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, and what kind of house will you build for me? And it says in the New Testament that honestly, the new temple, that's right, we're sitting in the room. We are the new temples. Some of us might think we look better than the other temple, but we're the temples. Like, that's the place. This whole stuff is done. It's just stuff. It looks impressive. It's not where God resides. He resides in us. And so we have on the next slide here, Herod's temple that was so precious to them, it got torn down uh, in about 70 AD. So about 40 to 50 years after, these guys are like, you know, our temple, our temple, our temple. It's our, it's our great sacred place. God ended up taking it away anyways. Took it away. This guy Titus came in and uh, Jesus, you know, prophesied that and he said, one stone would not be left on top of another stone. They're just going to overturn it. And at that site, they built, built another thing. It's considered to be the most sacred site in the world called the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock. This Dome of the Rock is supposed to be on the same site that Herod's temple was at. That's there right now today. In Jerusalem. Started off as a uh, 
Judeo-Christian building, but now it's a mosque. It wasn't built really intended to be a mosque, but now it is. And it's right in Jerusalem. And I don't know if you've seen, on, here's another picture, on, recently on YouTube, there was this thing on YouTube about some sighting that they had. It was very recent. It was on Yahoo and a whole bunch of plays, uh, pages. There's this video that a couple people had where there was like, almost like a, like a UFO type thing. I don't know what it was. But it was on. It's an interesting video. You should take it out. I don't know what your take is going to be on it. But it's interesting, interesting nonetheless. So these people on vacation, they're there at the Dome of the Rock. You have one uh, kind of person who had a cell phone, another person who had a camcorder, and they're there filming it. All of a sudden, this like, bright light kind of just is above it. And then like big flash goes off. And then the thing just takes off. Like, super fast, just straight up. So it's weird. Like, what is that about? I don't know. Is it a hoax? Who knows? Maybe. But this place is very, very important. Very important. That site is extremely important. And a lot of end-time prophecies come with that. In fact, in Jerusalem, when you see pictures on TV, and you see them at the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall there, the reason why they're facing that way and they're praising like that is because within that site, something called the foundation stone, and they think that's where um, Isaac was being offered as a sacrifice. And that's why they think that Jacob was sleeping and, and he said he saw angels. It's a very sacred site. So they, always, they actually face that direction because that stone is in there. They won't go in there, but they face it. And so as far as the Jewish and Hebrew heritage, like their places and where God has been is extremely, extremely important. So if you have some guy, Stephen, coming in and saying, ah, the temple really isn't that important. And God can just take this thing and tear it down at any point in time. That's some serious business. And these guys are not, not happy about it. So, what is the thing that really sticks out the most from this passage? Right, I almost titled uh, the message a bunch of stiffs. Right, you can call them a bunch of stiffs, right? Play on words there because they're stiff-necked, right? We talked about being stubborn, not listening. These guys were a bunch of stiffs. And so, that really is where their sin is, where their crime is, and where they really need to address. And I think... Oh yeah, we already talked about that one. So a bunch of stiff necks. And it's really not anything new. Because way back in the Old Testament, God talked to them. He said, The Lord, the God of your fathers, sent word to them through His messengers again and again because He had pity on His people and on His dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers. They despised His words and scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against His people and there was no remedy. Like they were doing it way back then. They're continuing it in it now. And the fact is with these guys... They could not, they would not, and they certainly did not want to acknowledge God's power even though it was right in front of them. They didn't want to do it. I mean, they had the church being born right there, the Holy Spirit alive, things were happening, but they did not want to recognize the power of God. Why? Why were they being hard-headed, stubborn, well, for them, kind of boiled down to a pride issue. We read that they were just jealous. They didn't like what was going on. They'd rather preserve their temple and their traditions and be open to like what a new work God might be doing. They had such an opportunity with these guys. Man, they could have just like been there with them and asked them, 
what is God doing? How is He doing this stuff? What's going on? How can we help out? How can we like get on board with this thing? But they chose not to. Um, and they wouldn't. They were blinded by their own passions, desires, and fleshly things. So, what do we do with that? What do we do with it? Well, first thing is, these guys had to deal, they had to deal with the issue of Christ. That was the first thing that they had to deal with, right? How are they being uh, stubborn, hard-headed? Is that they were resisting the Holy Spirit. And in fact, they got so bad to where they just covered their, you know, they got to be like a three-year-old. They put their fingers in the ears, and uh, they didn't want to hear anything, and then they just took them out and they just killed them. They, they got to that point where they're just like, I don't want to hear this anymore. I am done. To me, that's scary. That jumped out at me because I was like, man, you know, to come to a point where God could really be talking to you and really try to be trying to speak to you and show you some things, and you just get to a point where you're just like, God, I am like, I'm going my own direction. La, 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 la. Right? Just, I don't want to hear it. That is, that's scary. That's scary. And that can easily happen. I mean, these were religious leaders. Hey, if anybody's not going to do it, you think, hey, it might be those guys. Right? It might be those guys. So, what do we do with that? I mean, as far as, first things first. You've got to become a Christian, first of all, and not resist God in that way. Like, if He is lulling you and calling you to be in your life, you've got to take advantage of that. You have to. Because at some point in time, you're going to get to the point where you're just like, you just avoid God and just all that stuff and just tack everything up to a coincidence and explain everything away, put the fingers in the ears and, you know, you're going to be done with that. But what if, but you've kind of already made that commitment to God and you're trying to follow in the Spirit and you're trying not to resist, you know, what do you do? Well, we just got a whole scene, a whole scene of the first early church Christian martyr. Right? We just got that whole scene. We just read through the whole thing. He's the first Christian martyr of the early church. And some would say he had the privilege of just really dying right after that. A lot of people would say it's much, much more difficult to be a living sacrifice. Right? He was a sacrifice right then right there. For a lot of us, we're called to be a living sacrifice. And kind of the goofy phrase that goes around sometimes in the Christian circles is that the problem with the living sacrifice is you can crawl off the altar. Right? You can just crawl off at some point in time. When it's just right then and there and it happens to you, it happens to you. But as far as living sacrifice, it, it's hard work. Day in and day out. You know, and so what are the ways that it gets to us? Well, we can just come to a place where we just sort of just ignore what God is doing, really not pay attention to it, surround ourselves with other messages, we just tack it up to being busy, and we just kind of fill our lives just with other things just to kind of drown out what God might be tr trying to do and what He might be trying to say. And you know, why do we sometimes do that stuff? I mean, why would we really 
have issues with being a living sacrifice and resisting God. A lot of times it's just afraid what He might ask us to do and where He might ask us to go. Fear is a huge, huge part. Um, also, it's in our nature. Like We're not built to just follow God easily right away. We're just not built. There's that constant battle that always goes on. It's just like my flesh versus the Spirit. And you can just always feel it. This past week was a rough one for me. I could just always feel that battle. I'm like, man, when do I get that new tent, like that new temple when we get up there? Because that would really be helpful right about now. Just have this battle constantly going on. It's in our nature to be rebellious. It's in our nature to be stiff-necked. Right? It's in our nature not to you know, really put ourselves in a position where we might get hurt. So those are things that can fight us. And so to ask God to just uh, help us with being a living sacrifice and not resisting what the Spirit might be trying to do. And so the first part we talked about already, consenting to be loved, that's the issue of dealing with Christ right here, right now. Because at some point in time, not going to have forever to deal with Christ. It's not always going to be an issue where you always have time to say, yep, I think I will, uh, I'll deal with Jesus today in a serious way. You're not always going to have all that time. At some point in time, it's going to run out. And unexpected things do happen. And as far as being a living sacrifice, let's try and weed out some of those things that can cloud it out and, and drown it. And let's not f- let fear dominate. And if those things are there, then to ask God, like, God, I'm afraid of this stuff. I don't want to take this step. Like, those are good prayers and things that you should ask to help battle that resistance because we're naturally inclined to not just follow God's Word right away. That's just not the... That's not our default. Our default is to go the other way all the time. So it really helps to surround ourselves with people that are given that same message, that are battling the same way, uh, to read books that also deal with those same issues. So, Stephen, what an unbelievable, you know, first Christian martyr. A guy who put it all on the line, didn't water anything down, and, you know, the last thing at the end there, what an unbelievable display of love and grace. As it goes down and he goes, God, just forgive him. They don't know what they're doing right now. And that's a familiar phrase, isn't it? That's a familiar phrase. We've heard that one before. And I know that's convicting for me as I read that because I don't know. (laughs) That's a a fat chance I might be saying that prayer when something like that is going down. My prayer might be all the way on the other side. God, I hope you take these guys out. And may it be a miserable death. I hope you ruin their lives and their families. And I would just go at it. But what a supernatural picture of love and grace as it goes down. And how does it end? It ends where God, this heavens open, He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. It's not like that. Right in Colossians or Corinthians it says that when He ascended, He's seated at the right hand of God. So He gets a standing ovation from Jesus when He comes up there. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, that gives me goosebumps as they just talk about it. It's amazing. So, uh, so let's come in prayer and ask God about some of this stuff. And so, God, we just um, we just pray, Lord, that 
help us not to be guilty of being completely stiff-necked and stubborn for all the wrong reasons. We're definitely going to struggle with things. Um, we're going to have difficulties. But help us to persevere in the ways that we should. Help our focus to be on the right things. And, uh, you know, the testimony of Stephen defending his faith, Lord, he knew it well. He was educated about it. And it was a reality for him, Father. We pray that you help us to know our faith well. Um, fill our lives with stories, Lord. And Father, we just pray that you just give us a supernatural love and grace towards other people. It's immediately convicting for me, Lord, as soon as I read that, God. And um, Give that to us, Lord. Give us... Uh, it really is supernatural, God, coming only from You. So we pray that we'd have a greater measure of that in our own lives, Father. Thank You for the, for the model of Stephen and help us to go out and be a living sacrifice that at least for the most times we stay on the altar. We don't crawl off, God. Help us to stay on there and be a sacrifice for You, Father. So we thank You for this time this morning, Lord. Help us to be persistent in the right ways, God, to what You called us to do and what You're asking us to do, but not so hard-headed and stubborn to where we get caught up with ourselves and other things, God. So we thank You for this time this morning. Pray keep us safe, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. And so on the back, we have...